to the MS Dev Show episode number six. This week we talk to Jason Short about the top mistakes developers make when building Windows apps, and we talk about the new Surface Pro 3. So Carl, what's new this week? Uh, not a whole lot. I've been handing out a lot of stickers this week, though. Oh, really? I've, yep. I've been stuck at home, so I haven't uh, gotten any to hand out, but I'll be out at, I'll be out in Redmond here soon, so I can, I can hand out quite a few of them. Excellent. Uh, people are really enjoying them, and I've seen them uh, on uh, uh, laptops and coffee mugs. Oh, really? Yep. Cool. I didn't even think of using... There we go. Sorry. Having auto, audio issues. I didn't even think of putting them on uh, coffee mugs. That's, that's a good idea. So this week we have an awesome special guest with us. Um, it's a, a guy that works on my team. His name is Jason Short. And uh, so we'll be talking to him later in the show about the, uh, the, the top 10 Windows 8 app mistakes. But uh, welcome, Jason. Thank you very much. Yep. So uh, let's just get into it. So one thing I wanted to mention this week before we get into the news, one thing I was battling with this week was uh, storage spaces in Windows. And I just wanted to kind of spread the word about how storage spaces works and, and uh, you know, for anybody who's not aware of it. So this was something that's new in Windows 8. And it lets you basically throw in a whole bunch of disks in your machine, pull them together and dynamically add new drives as you want to, to scale that up. And you can it, it's sort of like raid where you can do mirroring, you can do parity, um, you know, with parity is where you can just keep adding disks. It will still, you know, have redundant storage for you, but you can keep adding disks and increasing the, the amount of space in there. So I'm up to four, three terabyte drives in here. Uh, it's kind of a long story how I got that many drives, but you need a, a minimum of three disks in here. And uh, I've uh, basically the, the issue that I've been having is whenever I built this machine, I use some really cheap uh, SATA cables that I had from a few years ago. And I, I suspect, you know, I've been having continual issues over the past year with drives just disappearing. And I thought for the most part, I, that it was actually the drives failing. And in one case, I actually did have a drive fail. So that kind of threw, uh, threw me for a loop. But um, I ended up ordering some some locking SATA cables. I'm actually going to put them in the show notes because these things are really, really good. So whenever you plug these in your drives and your motherboard, they actually lock in and make it so that the, the cables can't fall out. And these are really, really high quality cables. So when when I swapped out the, the cables in here, everything started working again. But the reason that I wanted to mention storage space is what what was really amazing about this, even though I had drives that were randomly failing and, and bad cables, my storage space array the entire time still remained consistent. So even when one drive was missing, I was still able to use the, the disk. And uh, anytime that there were uh, more than, you know, more than one drive uh, not working, I was able to, you know, the, the, the array would just show up as offline. So all I had to do was reboot or shut down and kind of jiggle the cables, start back up and, and everything was good to go again. So even though I've been having all these drive issues, I've just been super amazed by, by storage spaces. Anybody who, you know, wants to have redundant local storage, it's, it really has been amazing. But let's move on to the news. So Carl, I see uh, um, some prize money here. You want to talk about that? Yep. Uh, Unity has a contest going on and there's $100,000 in, in prizes at stake. Um, if you have a uh, you know, a game that you're working on that uses Unity or you're thinking about looking into it, uh, this might just might be the motivation that you need. First prize is $50,000. Second prize is $30,000. And um, third prize is $10,000. Um, you have until July 20th uh, is uh, to get it published into the store to qualify for this. And uh, that's a pretty extensive motivation for me. 
Yeah, that's that's nothing to sneeze at for sure. <laughs> yeah, and and I know plenty of people who have been you know dabbling in Unity, trying to figure out what it's about. And, and you, if you have a half a game going already, um, they said that the the game will be judged fifty uh, percent on quality, thirty uh, percent on creativity and originality, and twenty percent on technical excellence. So okay, uh, yeah, it's a real quick form to enter what your app is, and uh, just thought everybody out there might be interested in that. Okay. Does it have to be, it has to be a, a new application published as of a certain date or how does that work? It has to be uh, published by July 20th. Okay. But what if it was published before that? Um, I don't know how old far back it can go. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll have a link in there for the rules in, okay. in the show notes. Yeah. But, I was just uh, curious cause we, you know, we talked to Jeff Weber recently and he's got crash lander and I know the, you know, he had mentioned that the initial version of that was not uh was not written in unity but he was actually going back and he rewrote the entire application in unity it does look like it will have to be a, a new one i'm seeing uh may 1st okay okay so. that makes sense that's that's a pretty good prize though that's that's pretty exciting that's that's great that they're able to uh to do that that's i think that's really gonna push a lot of new interesting apps yep uh so next up one thing that we want to talk about, even though it's, you know, not necessarily develop directly developer related, this was just huge news this week. The uh, surface three announcement. Yeah. It's de definitely developer candy though. Yeah. I, I, I really, really want one of these things. So what's interesting about this. So the, you know, I, I've never owned the, the surface pro devices. I originally bought an RT, which was, you know, in, was definitely a little bit sluggish. And, uh, for some things it was just unworkably slow. And whenever the surface two came out, uh, it, it, you know, threw on a better screen and the performance was, was much better. And the, the pro devices kind of went on their, their own line too, right? The first one had, had pretty horrible battery life. The second one improved that considerably. So this one, you know, beefs up the battery even further. This thing is as thin as the, as the surface two, cause the, the surface pro two was, was kind of a, it was, it was pretty thick and heavy. So yeah, I saw a picture online comparing it to the thickness of an iPhone 5S. Yeah, I saw that too. And it's absolutely amazing. You put this thing on a table. It, 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 we're not going to see devices get thinner than this anytime soon. I, I just can't imagine. We're, we're, just, we're getting to the lower bounds of, of material thicknesses at this point. So this thing is it's, it's unbelievably thin. And, uh, and it's also very light. Or even, even though it has a, a 12 inch screen now, and, uh, I've every report I've heard of the screen has has said that the screen is beautiful. Uh, Jason, have you seen one of these in person yet? I was actually in a meeting this afternoon where someone had one they were playing with. Oh, that's awesome. So what, what was your impression or did you not get to touch it? Uh, I was not allowed to touch it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he said he just got it, just signed for it. No one could touch it. Uh, so I was like, all right, that's cool. Oh, wow. And then this thing, it's uh, just like the, the Surface Pro 1 and 2. It's got the, the pen again, but it's a different kind of pen. And I was just reading a review of uh, basically from an artist, and they were saying that even though this thing has less, you know, only has 256 levels of pressure, that it's still pretty much indistinguishable from the, the previous pen, which was the 1024. So, you know, for for people who don't understand how this pen works... You know, if you're if you're on an iPad or a normal touchscreen and you go buy a pen that works with a typical touchscreen, all you're really doing is you're buying a stick that simulates a finger. In this case, this is the, the actual pen interacts with the screen and can get you, you know, super thin 
lines and the harder you push on it, the wider the line is. So you can actually, artists can actually use this thing and you can do really, really fine grain drawing with this thing. Yeah. And, and the big improvement on this one over the previous one as well is that there's absolutely no lag. So when mm -hmm. you're drawing a line, the pixels are peering under underneath it immediately. Yeah, that's, so. that's pretty huge. Lag is lag kills. So um, let's talk about pricing on this too, because I, I I think this is interesting. There's a lot of there's a lot of reviews I'm reading and saying this thing is just priced too darn high, but um, you know here here's my take on it. I, I think if you look at the at the low end version of this, which is what eight hundred bucks seven seven ninety nine. Yep. I mean that's that's getting into iPad territory, and I think that's about the same price as a really high end iPad. So if you compare the low-end Surface Pro 3 to a high-end iPad, there's really no competition. This thing is going to blow the iPad out of the water for, you know, any kind of, you know, creative tasks, any, anything like that. There's probably, you know, the iPad, the, the one place it's going to have the advantage, I think, is, is on the apps that are, that are optimized for that touchscreen. But in pretty much any other case, this thing is going to just destroy any kind of, any kind of iPad. And if we look at the pricing on the high end, you get into the, you know, the, this thing goes as high as 2000 bucks and, you know, you, you throw a cover into that and, you know, you're well over $2,000. You know, what, what's interesting about that is, is the, the, the tech news that, that I watch and the, the analysts that I've seen, they said, Hey, Microsoft needs to come out with a premium product and, and compete head on with Apple. Well, that's exactly what happened. And now I'm just seeing all these reports that cost too much. So well, uh, I, I think it, that's uh, a few things because really, I mean, Microsoft is comparing this both to an iPad and to a MacBook Air. Right. So people are comparing features and the, you know, uh, thinness and weight to the MacBook, mm -hmm. but then they're also comparing, you know, the prices to the iPad mm -hmm. and you really can't do this. I mean, it really is a laptop replacement that is also makes an outstanding tablet. Yeah. So I, I you know, that was, that was my initial take. I, I guess what I'm going to say about this thing, it's just different. It's just a different type of device. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to call it a laptop. I, it, it's a workable laptop. I'm not really going to call it a tablet. It's, it's kind of a big tablet. It's a workable tablet. And you, you really have to just look at this thing. Don't, don't try to compare it to something else. Just say, does this do what I need it to do? And in my case, I'd love to have one of these, you know, the fact that I can uh, pop the keyboard on, take some notes. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd use the pen or not for notes, possibly. I mean, it has this cool feature where you can push the button on the pen and wake up the screen. It'll jump into OneNote instantly without having to, you know, go through and launch anything. But uh, it, you know, it'll work good for notes. Um, I fly quite a bit. So on, on an airplane, I think it would be pretty slick uh, with, with the kickstand to be able to put that on the, on the tray table and, and, and watch some movies on it. I think this thing would be an amazing movie machine. So, you know, I think people just need to look at what type, what, what they want out of a device and, and not try to say, Hey, this thing is a laptop killer. I mean, I don't, I don't think it is a laptop killer and I don't think it's the be all end all of tablets either. It's, it's, it's just the surface three. Yeah. Um, I heard, uh, somebody talk about, uh, enterprises saying that, you know, right now we're paying for three devices for people, the phone, a tablet and a laptop Yeah. and they don't mind paying, but they, they really only want to pay for two. Yeah. And I kind of look at it, um, I would like to do the same thing. You know, right now I, I have both a tablet and a laptop and mm -hmm. I would really much prefer just to combine them. And the surfaces seems like a great way to do that. Yep. Well, yeah, I, I if really you start want comparing those. the pricing and mm -hmm. you look at the price of a MacBook Air plus a high-end iPad, now you're in the price <laughs> range of a high-end Surface 3. Yeah. 
So yeah. if you are able to replace two devices with it, maybe it's not such a bad deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the pricing is fine. I, I really have. I honestly have no problem with the pricing. I know, obviously, some people are more price sensitive. There's people that that only have, you know, 500 bucks for for a machine, but they weren't going to buy the Apple either. They're they're not going to buy a machine that gets good reviews. Exactly. Yeah. So I I really like the device. I I I really want to get one. And my wife, uh, she she has my old Surface too, and she was using that for school. Well, of course the it works for the school website, but the first class she goes to take this online class and she goes to the website and it says, Hey, you need Chrome for this. You know, they just have a requirement that they need Chrome. So that was, that was a non-starter. So I, I think that she would actually like the surface three cause she loves the surface two, but now it just has that limitation that she can't use it for her particular case. We're great for everything else, but just not that. So I think that's enough about the surface three. Any, any final comments? You guys going to buy one, Carl? I, I have to save up for it. <laughs> what about you, Jason? What are you going to do? No, I think I have too many toys right now. I don't I don't see that happening. I know. I'll, I'll wait a while. That That's my problem. I got to figure out how to sell these devices to, to save up for it. I mean, I it's it, it's kind of embarrassing the, the amount of devices I'm surrounded by. It, it but, is kind of embarrassing. I mean, yeah. my wife, my wife walked around just the first floor of our house the other day. And she counted seven devices. And she's like, <laughs> do we really need this many tablets? And I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And my, my kids, I have, you know, I have a, my middle kid is six years old and it, he's funny because he'll start talking to somebody and he'll go, yeah, I have a laptop, I have a tablet and I have a phone. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> now his phone isn't, it doesn't actually have a cell plan, but it, it's just, it's, it's funny. We're, we're just living in a, in a different world now. So moving on. So now, like I mentioned earlier, we have, uh, you know, Jason short on here. Really excited to talk to Jason. I've been talking to him for the past couple of weeks saying, Hey, we got to get you on. Uh, cause he's got some, some really great information. So Jason actually works on the same team as me at Microsoft. And, uh, well, Jason, you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So, uh, I owned my own company for 13 years before I joined Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I joined Microsoft, I joined in engineering and I recently switched to this customer facing role. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what I do internally, just because I'm passionate about it, is I help teach people who are maybe not programmers, but they're interested in building Windows 8 apps or mm-hmm. Windows Phone apps. And so we do these after hours things inside Microsoft. It's a garage. Um, it's like a it's just a, a hack type thing where anyone can come who's who's an employee mm-hmm. you know no one cares if you're in marketing or you're a lawyer or you're a whatever you can just show up everyone's kind of equal and we just help each other write apps mm-hmm. um and so last year we had six thousand employees build apps for windows phone and windows 8 which is kind of phenomenal wow um, but i have a bunch of lessons that you know people always come to me and say hey can you review my app can you help me i'm failing certification or they're in the store and they're like i'm getting a bunch of one-star reviews i don't understand why and so I kind of came up with this like top 10 list to kind of hand out to people. And like, mm-hmm. if you're coming to me with one of these top 10 mistakes, you seriously need to step back and like rethink what you're doing before you put your stuff in the store. Right, right. And then you you have um, you have a couple apps in the store yourself, right? Yeah, I've got, I think it's four or five right now in Windows 8. And I've got about half a dozen in Windows Phone. Um, plus I have some on Android and some on iOS. So yeah, I, I kind of dabble in all of them. It's just fun to me. You know, it's... It, when you play with technology for a living, it's just, you know, it's like, why not? This is all fun. 
Right. And if you think about how many apps that you've at least had a hand in just encouraging people and helping them out, I mean, think of the the reach you've had there. That's that's really amazing. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's one of those things where I didn't start out to do that. It was just fun. Mm-hmm. And we had someone come to one of the the hack uh, stay late and codes that we did. And he was like, Hey, can you guys help me review my app? And a whole lot of other people started, you know, kind of like, Hey, you know, can I listen in? Can I listen in? And now we've just kind of turned it into a regular thing where people bring their apps in and we just kind of decompose them and say, Hey, you forgot about live tiles or Hey, you forgot about this. Um, and so it's just all, all the, all the tips that I have here about mistakes are just things that I've kind of learned by helping people. Um, but as I talk to more and more developers, they're like, yeah, I'm guilty of number seven or I'm guilty of number five or, you know, and, <laughs> and so it really is just kind of a common thing. Um, and now that we have uh, universal apps, I'm actually going back and redoing this list. Um, and, and I'm actually finding that most of them are still here. Some of them we've corrected from a platform standpoint mm-hmm. um, that you can't do them anymore because so many people made that mistake. Um, but th- there are still some that people are just going to keep running into. Okay. Um, Carl, you want to start walking through this list here? Sure. So your app mistake number 10 is the default splash screen and icon should never be left at the default. So the reason why I kind of wanted to talk to this a little bit more is I remember when I made my first Windows Phone app, um, I actually made it for work when I was working for uh, Jason, uh, as a matter of fact, and somebody else had made an equivalent uh, iOS app. And just because the templates for the Windows Phone were so good, they looked a lot better than the iPhone version because iPhone really didn't give you anything um, for styling uh, whatsoever. So kind of my thought process went on on this tip is that, you know, the templates for that Microsoft gives you kind of do look pretty decent out of the box and they do want you to modify and tweak them and change them. Is that a problem that, you know, we're given too much and people just kind of get lazy and not learning? I, I do totally think that's it, that people just kind of file new project and they have whatever their ideas, whatever that passion was that drove them to build that app. They're like, I want to solve this problem. And they really don't care about anything else. Mm-hmm. So they leave everything at the defaults. And now if you leave your app at the default icon, you'll fail certification. Like that is now a certification check because so many people did it. And if you think about it from the store standpoint, that's bad because people really do get, you know, their first little hint of engagement is the icon of your app. And so I tell people, if you leave that at the default battleship gray with a white box, you're basically telling people, I don't care if you need my app or not, because that is your first hook. You have to have a great icon. Yeah, and, and I think another thing that reinforces that is now that the uh, Windows Phone 8.1 preview is out, you have the option for the transparent backgrounds that will allow the um, the your background image if you choose it out. And the number one change you see to the change sets on all these apps right now are we're making this change to support that so the icon looks good for the user. Yep. And actually, I would say now, give the user a choice. Like Mm -hmm. if they just press and hold your app and say pin, they get your default icon, whatever that is. So make a good choice. But for within the app, let them choose, hey, pin this and say, I want a transparent or I want something else. It's really easy to do from within your code. And it just gives that user a little bit more tie in. You know, if they're really, really, you know, ultra, everything has to be transparent. Let them do it. But if they really are, you know, they don't care, they could care less. They, you know, they're using a color, they're using a photo and they want everything to look um, you know, like a solid background. Give them that choice also, because it's really easy to do in your code. All right. The next thing that uh, I was looking at is uh, advertising. 
Now you said that uh, advertising should be as as they're a part of the content, not like just a huge banner strewn across them. And I, I would say, you know, at least on the phone side, since I look at that a little bit more closely, that is nearly all the ads I see are just the banner ads at the top or the bottom. And in fact, yep. most of them are put right where you're going to just accidentally smack your thumb and <clears throat> yep. accidentally get yourself away from the app. And, and you know, I, I tell people, especially on Windows Phone, you don't get paid for clicks. You know, a lot of people will set their ads up on purpose to be near something that the user is going to click thinking, ha, 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 I'll trick them. And they're going to click this and I'll get a higher click-through rate. You're not getting paid for that. It, the Bing Pub Center ads, they're just paying per impression. They don't pay you for the clicks. Really? And I, okay. I think that's something that a lot of people forget, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, why tick your users off, you know, for zero gain? You're not actually getting anything out of that. So th- that's always my first tip. It's like, d- don't, don't do that. D- don't put it where someone could accidentally click it. But the second thing is, make it a part of your content. So if you have a game, and you're in between levels, going from level one to level two, and you have a loading screen, that's a good spot to put an ad. Have it while it's there. If you're, you know, if it takes 20 seconds to load the next level, it gives them something to look at. Then when the next level comes up, take the ad away. Like, don't keep that ad as a part of your game content. People think, well, I'm getting more impressions that way. Yes, you are. But you're also giving part of your precious screen real estate to an ad that could be really annoying, could be animated, could be anything. You have no control over what that's going to look like. So if you're building an immersive game where people are heads down, they're really involved in it, it has a great soundtrack, you've spent all this time on it, and then you throw up some really annoying, you've got mail thing animating all over the top of your stuff, that's just, that's just bad. Like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and especially in Windows 8, where you usually have a lot more screen real estate, you can take an ad and you can make it a part of your content. You know, think of newspapers. I mean, a lot of people don't even, you know, read the newspaper anymore, but they used to have columns of text and you'd have an ad that kind of the text broke around. That is acceptable. People are willing to forgive that ad there and they're not ad blind to it. Like if you put a banner ad on the far right of your app or on the upper right hand corner, people are totally ad blind. They don't even see those things anymore within mm-hmm. most apps. I mean, it, it's just, you know, that's just the way it is. People are so used to seeing them, they just avoid them. But if you make it part of your content, that as a user swiping through a story, you know, if you have an RSS reader, put it, you know, in, in the bottom of the content so that they have to scroll down there in order to see it, people don't mind those types of ads and people will spend more time in your app. And I also see people make the mistake of trying to put one within the content and then a second one within the content that are both visible in the screen on the same time. The Pub Center only counts one of those. So don't bother. Like, don't load your app up with a bunch of ads all over the place. You're not getting any more advertising credit for that. Make sure there's only one on the screen at a time. And it's acceptable when they swipe to the left to, you know, read a story and that first one scrolled off to bring another one in. That's okay. But don't start putting two, three ads on the screen and thinking you're making somehow making more money. You're not. Yeah, another uh, recommendation that you had is using multiple ad networks if for some reason one doesn't fill or something um do you have any recommendations to make that process easier or is that something you kind of have to handle on your own so actually i think this is a huge 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 point that a lot of people forget is that ad networks do not always have a fill rate of 100 percent. as a matter of fact i don't know any that have a fill rate of 100 percent. the pub center for a while went for a a period where they were only filling three to four percent of your of the the ad request so that means 90 plus percent of the time, you're not getting any ads at all. That's just a horrible, you know, 
it's a horrible day for you. Um, and now you have this weird blank spot in your content because you had, you know, set aside for an ad to be there and it's not. So in my own apps, the first thing I did was, okay, fine. If I can't get an ad from pub center, I'm going to advertise one of my other apps. That's really easy to do. You have a default image that kind of, you get an event from pub center saying, you know, no ads available and you throw up your own ad. That's called a house ad, like your in-house mm -hmm. ad. You just advertise another one of your apps. You send them to the app store. Hey, at least you always have something there. That that was kind of my, my thinking around it. No, that's a great idea. Then, and worse comes to worse, they buy another one of your apps. Yeah, which you know, most people when they're building apps, you know, like I have a lot of sports apps, and so you know, they may or may not be interested in it, but at least it's not blank. So then I started using Ad Duplex, which um, Ad Duplex is an advertising network that's a little different in that you advertise other people's apps in exchange for them to advertise your app. So it's not a lot of cost to it. So if you if you show 100 ads in your app for other people, 80 times your app will be shown in other people's apps. And then the 20% goes to the network themselves. So that's a great way to get some exposure. A, you know they have a Windows 8 app because that's the only way they're going to find you is if someone's in a Windows 8 environment or a Windows phone. They actually do have a provider for Windows phone as well. Um, but as long as you know that this person already has a Windows device, you might as well be advertising to them. Um, you can buy ad impressions as well, but I just leave it in there as my backup. So there are additional controls you can use. Um, I use one called Ad Rotator that's out on CodePlex. And you can actually say, hey, I want the pub center to be my primary or 80% of the time and the 20% of the time show my house ad or if the pub center is not available, you can build up these like little complicated rules around, you know, when you want to show different things. And the great thing about ad rotator is you can also say, Hey, I'm in Europe. Now I want to change the rules because maybe pub center has zero ad coverage in some countries in Europe. So you can say when I'm in, you know, the Netherlands, for example, don't bother using PubCenter at all. Use, you know, some other ad network, for example. Um, and so the, the ad rotator stuff is, I really like it. I know some people have had some problems with it, um, but it is an open source project. And I always tell people, hey, you, you have problems with it, you know, contribute. Yeah. And don't don't underestimate the the value of of doing ad optimization. I, I, I know this is just anecdotal evidence from the web, but I found that on a site I had ads on, Switching the ad size and, and not necessarily just making it bigger, but trying a different ad size, I was able to increase the the uh, the money made by about 20 X. Oh, so, yeah. So, you know, don't don't be afraid to, to do some A-B testing. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and I think the other mistake a lot of people make is, well, I have a game, but I'm going to put it, you know, so that all my ads are shown from, you know, families for kids or something like that. They think choosing the category in PubCenter is somehow going to give them a bigger ROI. Mm -hmm. You actually end up getting penalized because the pub center is looking at the usage pattern of your app. And if they see this thing's always being used by people, you know, age 35 to 60, you don't have any kids playing this thing. Why are you trying to advertise to kids? You know, so don't think that you're pulling a fast one over on the, on the ad networks. Like they know what you're doing. So just, you know, be legit. If you have a casino game, just label it what it is. D don't try to lie to the pub centers. They'll find out at some point anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the next thing that I actually really wasn't quite sure how this worked, but you said that in the store, the new and rising category, um, is dependent upon also upon how many people download your app after an update. Correct. So 
now with auto updates, and, and I will preface this with everything around the internals of how the stores work are just that. They're internal, right? So they're subject to change. You know, don't I, I tell people don't optimize too early. <laughs> you know, if if you think that you've got this model figured out, they're likely to change it on you. Um, a good example is app keywords. People thought people had a way to game that system. Microsoft figured it out. They closed that way, so people can't game the system anymore. But this is one of those things that you do need to think about. So the new and rising category, it's not just about brand new apps. The rising part of it comes from the delta differential of downloads per day. So if you think about the fact that, hey, I have you know 10 new users a day downloading this app. Six months in, you've got you know hundreds of users. You produce an update. If a sizable percentage of them run that app the next day because they're like, hey, look, there's a new version. Let me see what's going on here. You, you can't actually show up in the new and rising category because all those analytics are actually being tracked at the store side of how many people are running your apps, how often they run them, all that kind of stuff is being collected. Yeah, I thought that was really, really important to know because that's not something that you think about. You know, uh, it, I've heard a lot of advice about, you know, push something out there, push an update, fix it, follow the feedback that's given to you and, you know, just makes a lot of small, steady improvements. But yep. it didn't occur to me that because people, I could be getting more users because of that, that I would qualify for this category. So I just thought that would be a, a, an interesting thing to bring out. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and the other thing I tell people is let users know when they're running a new version of your app. You know, when the store, you had to go manually download your updates, people knew what they were getting. But today, because it just kind of comes magically in the background, people don't realize, hey, there's a new version of this app that I'm running. So if you added a new feature from, you know, the build last month to the build this month, they're not as likely to go back to the store and read your text and say, we've added a new feature to do X. So what I always do in my apps is, is um, you can actually reflect your app manifest and get the current version, and I store that. As the last time I ran, here's what version I was. So when I start up, I check that. I say, here's my current app manifest version. Here's what it was the last time I ran. If they're different, then I must be running a new version of the app. I go out to Azure. I pull down a little text file that I actually I manually build that says you know 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. do is I just write in there, hey, here's the changes from the last time you ran this app. Oh, I love that. I wish I wish more apps did that, at least for the for the big features. Yes, because how else are people going to find that you added this fantastic new feature? Right, right. And sometimes I Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> I sometimes I go back and I look at the app description or or the details and sometimes it's listed, sometimes it's not. Um that's I love that idea. And it's really really easy to do. And then I put analytics around it on um in Azure so I can tell how many people are downloading it. And then I know how many people, this is the first time they've run that app. So if I produce a major new release, 2.0, they may have downloaded it, but did they ever run it? You should build a website and a, and a library to manage that. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the next thing I wanted to talk about uh, is something I think that I'm especially guilty of, um, is having paid apps with a free trial that never expires. Um, <laughs> we all are. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess part of it is, you know, it's really easy to implement this. You just say, hey, there's a there's a trial in there. You can give it away for free and you can have people pay. And, you know, it's super easy to implement. Um, whereas doing the correct thing is to have a free app with an in-app purchase. Um, is it, It's not terribly hard, but it's a little bit more difficult. It, is there a it's way to work. make that 
is that is there a way to make that easier or is that just kind of a the way things are and we just have to realize that people will download free things at a massive rate compared to things that look like they're paid but are still free so I, i'll give you some anecdotal evidence from some of my own apps so i had an app that was free well it was free as a trial type of thing and if you wanted to pay for it you could you know and i think a lot of people do this because it's really really easy to implement then i took the exact same app renamed it i even left the same icon the app was identical all i did was <laughs> rename it put it in the store but it was free free with an in-app purchase to get rid of the ads because that's really all buying the app did for you. Mm-hmm. My free free version of the app actually had 30x the downloads of the the quote unquote paid version, even though it was a free trial forever and it just had ads in it. So hey. that right there told me 30x the downloads is like, well, since I really was willing to let you run this thing for free, I should just make it free. Wow. And, and even if only a fraction of the people ever converted under that in-app purchase model, you're still way ahead. Way ahead. So the app had actually been in the store for about eight months as a paid with a trial. And I surpassed that total number of downloads in three weeks by using just the free version. So then I started looking at it further and I was like, okay, so I have this in-app purchase to get rid of ads. That's great. And I actually had, it was a sizable percentage of people were paying for it at that point. Like nine to 10% of the people were actually paying to remove the ads. Wow. That's pretty substantial. Yeah, it was fantastic. And so then I said, well, there's all these other features that I want to add, but they kind of feel premium to me. Like, you know, I really don't want to give these away. This is kind of, I think people would be willing to pay for this. When you have a paid app model, you can't charge anything extra when you add some cool new feature. When you have in-app purchase, you can. You can add major new features to your app, leave it as free, and give someone an additional trial. Like I've actually added in some of my apps, um, like I have some baseball apps where you could pin your favorite team for free to your home screen. But if you wanted to pin a second team, that now was an unusual usage case. You had to pay extra for that. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking at those types of things. Where else could I monetize? And I said, you know what? There's some of these things where I've added features. Very few people want them, like the ability to back up all their data to SkyDrive or to put it in you know, some other format. But the people who do want it are willing to pay for it. Make it an in-app purchase. You know, no one would be willing to pay five bucks for one of my apps, but I do have like seven 99 cent add-ins and I do have a couple of people who have bought all of them. Whereas if I would have set the price at five bucks, I probably would have got no one to have ever downloaded it. But because I'll have one to 2% of people buy just the in-app purchase that they care about, I'm actually monetizing to a broader audience. Now the core app, the free app still has to be good. It still has to have functionality. You can't, you know, put everything behind a paywall. I, I, I don't think that's a good idea. But there are always those types of, of freemium or, or premium type features that if someone really wants them and they're willing to pay for them, hey, why not? You know, why not charge them for it? Yeah, you've also brought up a really good point. And not only with, you know, knowing what your people want, but you've, you've talked about a few other times on the analytics. Um, what kind of analytic services do you use or do you recommend? So it, that's actually my number one app mistake in, in the blog post. Um, is that if, if you're not tracking what's happening within your app, you're doing it wrong. I mean, you're just absolutely doing it wrong because there are, and, and it used to be people say, well, it's too expensive. It's too difficult to set up. You know, I, I don't need to know all that type of stuff. Trust me, you can actually implement it in, in as little as three lines of code. There are, there are a couple of libraries and they're free until you hit 
tens of thousands of daily users. When you have tens of thousands of daily users, you'll be very, very happy you have the data there so you can actually tell what people are doing and what they're using. Um, the two that I'm actually using really heavily right now is uh, Flurry, which is Flurry.com, uh, and Marked Up, which is MarkedUp.com. Um, I like both of those. They have slightly different APIs and slightly different interfaces, but I, I like both of them. And the best thing about implementing them right off the bat, you know, just add the three lines of code to say, hey, I'm starting up, initialize, here's my API key, go. Don't do anything else. You immediately get version tracking. So in some of my apps, for, for example, I had version 1.0, 1.2, 1.3, then 2.0, 2.1, 2.3, and I was really kind of like, is anyone still running 1.0? Do I need to leave this API up here on my server? Do I need to worry about updating it? You know, do I need to worry about refreshing it? Just by having Flurry in that app, I could actually go back and say, look, no one's running 1.0. Take that API down. I could stop doing maintenance. So I actually save myself time. But I could also then say, hey, here's some people who are still on Windows Phone 7. And this was actually a very heated topic you know, within the Windows Phone community was how many of your users are still using Windows Phone well, or Windows Phone 7? I could tell you exactly because I had the analytics to track it. I could go back and... From Flurry, say, give me a report of everyone who's still using Windows Phone 7.0. And I get a report, and I'd say, guess what? That's dropped to now less than 1% of my users. I can now drop that. I don't care anymore. So what, uh, what kind of metrics should we be measuring then, you know, other than what comes out of the box? What do you recommend? So some of the, the most important ones that I find is feature usage. So if you have 10 features in your app that you thought, hey, these are all primary scenarios, everyone's going to use these things every single day, do you know who's actually using them? Maybe they use one or two of them, but they don't use the others. And so if you're putting a lot of your energy and your effort in maintaining these five other features that no one's using, maybe you should deprecate them. Or maybe you should actually contact some users and find out why they're not using them. Maybe they don't actually work the way they thought they should work. So I think that's, that's probably my number one analytic thing that I th think people don't track. Keep track of what features people are using. If you just spent 1,000 hours implementing a brand new WizBing feature and no one's using it, I think you'd want to know that. Yeah, especially um, before you keep on supporting it and extending it. And Yeah, totally. Um, the, the second, I, I think, most important one is how many users are using your app and for how long? So if you have an app, like I have some, you know, sports apps, I expect them to be in and out. You know, they're checking their scores, they're getting in and out. But I do have some other apps that I expect people to sit there for a long time. So if I'm seeing a large percentage of users who are in the app, like under 30 seconds, I'm not meeting their need. It basically tells me I failed as an app developer. You know, they're launching the app, they're doing something. I don't know what it is that they're doing, but they're not finding it and they're leaving. They're frustrated. So if people are quitting your app within 30 seconds and you don't expect them to, then you know, hey, I need to, I need to start digging into this further. What, you know, what, am, what am I missing here? Um, and then the third one is exceptions. When things go wrong, you need to track that. You need to be able to get those crash reports because, let's face it, users are not going to call you up and go, hey, did you know I got this exception and it said blah, 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 blah on it? No, they're never going to tell you that. But mm -hmm. if you can trap it automatically, get it sent to an email account, or get it through the dashboard, Flurry and Marked Up both do that. Um, but you can actually get those crash dumps back to you. You can now fix those problems proactively without a user having to come complain. It'll help your reviews, and it'll help your users be happier. Yeah. Now, backtracking a little bit to your app mistake number two with live tiles, one yeah. of the things that I found interesting is you talked about that you should definitely be using deep linking because it's, it's a unique Windows Phone device. Um, none of the other platforms have it. 
And I was wondering if there was any other unique, uh, you know, things that the platform has that you think people should be using more or do a better job supporting. So live tiles are huge. I mean, th that is what differentiates us from the other platforms. You know, when people come to Windows, either the phone or the Windows tablet, the first thing they do is, wow, these things are actually alive. Like they flip and I get data on them. So first, make sure you're taking advantage of live tiles. Don't just leave a static image there um, because you're just wasting a huge opportunity. If you have a game, show people their last score. Show people, hey, you know, your friend beat your score, whatever. Make that tile, grab them. You know, give them a reason to come back into your app. But for line of business apps or for apps that are maybe not as gamey where you just go back to the home screen over and over within it, you know, like in, in, uh, I keep going back to my sports apps, but just because I have so many of them that uh, I have a lot of scenarios there is people may launch the sports app and just want to get a general overview of what's happening, you know, today in sports. But that's not the normal case. Normally they care about their specific team, you know, whatever their team is. So they'll pin that team to the home screen. When they launch that, you take them directly back to their team, what's happening, the news, the scores, those types of things. That's a unique thing that we have in, in Windows and in, in Windows Phone is the ability to send them directly where they, where they requested to go. So when you look at some um, apps, like even the Bing Sports app where you can you launch and it has like MLB, you know, uh, NFL, um, you know, maybe the NBA – that's great, but if I said I only care about baseball, you can pin that. And a lot of people don't even know that, but you can actually pin an individual sport, and then when you launch it, it navigates there for you. Anything you can do to remove friction from the user. You know, If they're getting frustrated by, great, I don't really want to go tap that app right now because I know I'm going to have to tap three more times to get down to what I actually care about, and that's going to take 30 seconds. If you can help shortcut that, you're going to have happier users. Yeah, for each of these things that you're mentioning, I'm, I'm, I, I can picture – every app that, you know, doesn't do this and how annoying that is. It is. And, <laughs> and, and users may not even be able to articulate it. You mm -hmm. know, we've had guys who, who have come into the garage and brought their app and they're like, I keep getting two star reviews and I keep having people who, when they first get the app, they're using it, you know, seven to 10 minutes at a time, you know, because they put analytics in, they know how, what people are doing. But then they say after a week, they never come back. And I'm like, you, you're missing something. You're not engaging them. There's no reason mm -hmm. for them to want to come back. And sometimes it's as simple as putting that live tile, and you can actually set a notification to fire off a week from the last time that they ran it. And a week later, just basically, you know, send them a little notification saying, hey, you haven't done X, whatever it was, you know, and recently, you know, can we help? And let them click on it and bring, bring them back into the app on a feedback form. Mm -hmm. Let them give you feedback outside of the store. That's one of the things I actually don't have in here as an app mistake um, that I'm adding in the next version is that when users only can reach out to you through the app store, that's where they're going to blast you. Right. If you have a way for them from within the app to say, hey, give me some feedback as to why you're not using this. And it, you either just send it to yourself through a server or send yourself an email, whatever it is, give them a channel to communicate with you. Then when you get that feedback, hey, Sometimes it's hard to hear, you know, that the thing you made doesn't work or doesn't do whatever. You got to take that feedback gracefully, but you have a chance. You have a huge opportunity there to improve your product because if someone took the time to fill out that form, go all the way through that, they actually care about your app. So looking at your, your webpage here, one of the things that you have on here is this build a minimum viable product. So this is, 
this is one that, that, that always gets me. I always have these, these big ideas and, and I'll sit down and I'll kind of sketch out an application and it's got, you know, 50 different features. It does everything you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And for me, it's, it's, you know, application paralysis. So I have, you know, 10 applications that, that I have not written. They're not in the store. So do you want to talk about this one a little bit? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I I think we're all guilty of that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it actually took me a bunch of iterations on apps where I would spend six months building them because I wanted to add, you know, 90 features to them. And by the time I got done, someone else already had one in the store. And I was like, hey, but mine's better because I have this and I have that and I have that. But guess what? They're already in the store. They're already getting downloads. They're already getting feedback. (laughs) And I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it is an important lesson that if you can ship the minimum viable, find out whatever that, you know, pick three. That's what I always tell people. Pick three, three things that you're going to be good at. If you can make your app do those three, even though you have four and five sitting in the wings, don't worry about them yet. Just get those three. Now, maybe you add somewhere within the app, you add a link or something to those other number four and number five. But what you tell people is, I'm thinking about building this. How would you expect this to work? Get your users to start, you know, looking forward to your next release. Start seeding that pump. And you'll actually find that users will tell you what the right thing is to build next. If you had two features that you were thinking about building and you got 100 emails about one and none about the other, which one would you build? Mm-hmm. So if you can get the users to get excited about it, then when you finally do ship that update that has that feature that they emailed you about, they're going to tell all their friends. They're going to go out and say, hey, I actually emailed this guy and he actually built it and go, look, I have this thing on here now. That's like free word of mouth advertising. I mean, you can't buy those type of evangelists for your product. That's awesome. Yeah. One thing I'd just like to add, just going back a little bit to the to commenting about the feedback, if if you don't really want to implement that all on your own, Nokia did write uh, a, a NuGet package uh, that's also on GitHub called Rate My App. It's fully open source. And if you just plug it in, you just have to give it a, a couple pieces of information. By default, after it runs, I, I don't know if it's five or 10 times, It'll um, prompt the user to uh, fill out a, a, a pre-filled form. E- email form. Fantastic. So, and you, you actually just hit on another part that I, I always try to drill into people. That is fantastic. The three or five time thing, that is key. Don't mm-hmm. the very first time your app run, hey, please go rate us. Hey, please give us feedback. Because people are like, I haven't even ran the damn thing yet. And you're asking me for feedback on it. Or, or worse yet, for some odd reason, if you screw up on something or they just had a bad day and, and they don't like your app for some reason, you're going to get hammered with one-star reviews. Yeah, so that's going to actually accelerate it. So what I tell people is even those hard-coded three- and five-time numbers, I don't really like those because, again, it could be on that bad day, right? Mm-hmm. I, I tell people, wait till they've done something meaningful within the app. Like I have a photography app that you take pictures, you annotate, and then it's actually for setting up um, photography training. So you go back again like a month later and you reshoot the same thing with different lighting conditions, different lens, different everything. So on that return trip, when they're back at that same location the second time, that's when I ask them for a review. Because I know, A, they've already been using the app for a month. And they're so vested, they went all the way back to whatever this location was to go shoot again. So I know now I probably have someone who's actually vested in seeing me succeed. Yeah, that's a really good point. And another nice thing about it too is it's open source, so you can just find that little hook, tweak it a bit, and now you can have it go on that event that you want it to. Absolutely. Yeah. The minimum viable, get the feedback. I think th- those are two of those like 
just must, must, must have. I mean, I, I really wish that the Visual Studio kind of file new project had a bunch of these things built in, like, you know, intelligent asking for feedback, you know, just some of these type things. But I understand why they don't, because then everyone would leave it at whatever the default was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Any, uh, any other questions, Carl? Nope. I think we got most of them. Okay. Any other comments on your list here, Jason, or anything else you want to talk about related to that? Um, we didn't mention where it is. And if you just search for Jason short, top 10 windows, eight app mistakes, you'll yep. find the blog post. It's on MSTN. Okay. Yeah. And, and Carl's been keeping track of all the, the different links that you've been mentioning and we'll put all those in the show notes. So it'll make it real easy for everybody to find all those. Fantastic. Yep. So up next, we wanted to talk about the, uh, Azure pick of the week. So I haven't in the past, I haven't called this the Azure pick of the week, but I've been trying to target one Azure feature each week. Uh, we've talked about storage. We've talked about, um, some of the different hosting options. And, uh, so this, we're going to make this, you know, regular, uh, section on the show and it could be either, you know, a feature in Azure itself or some kind of framework or, or just something related to Azure and helping people build cloud applications. So this week, I actually want to talk about something that I built that was actually fairly simple. It's there's, there's, there's not a ton of code in it, but I found it more and more useful as time has gone on, even though, you know, like I said, it, it's not a, it wasn't a whole lot of work to write it. I, I originally published this as sample code out on GitHub and then I turned it into a service. So the, the service is out at, at logforstuff.com. And basically what it is, you know, I've been working with, with partners recently where they're building distributed applications that, that are across different pieces of Azure. So they have, you know, PaaS world, you know, worker and web roles. They might have a website. They might have IaaS instances, you know, just different pieces running all over the place. They might even have uh, Windows services that are running, uh, you know, locally on on certain machines. And they want to they want to get some some real time insights into what's going on there. So there's there's frameworks, there's third party frameworks out there where you can do some really hardcore instrumentation. But what I wanted was something that was just drop dead simple, where I could just add a line of code, maybe a couple lines of code and get up and running with this. So I, I typically use a log for net for all of my logging and my applications. So what I did was I wrote an appender that would make it so that I could, um, you know, send log messages out to a website and you can watch these things in real time with signal R without signing up at all. So I, um, if you go out to logforstuff.com, you can check it out. I also wrote a blog post on this and we'll put the blog post in the show notes, but it really talks about how you can do this. So I specifically, I wanted to talk about a, a scenario that I ran into recently. So I, I've been playing around with the Orleans project out of uh, Microsoft research. So I downloaded the bits for that. And for those that aren't familiar with, uh, Orleans, it's basically a, a distributed actor model for on top of Azure. So it lets you write uh, pretty, it's actually a pretty easy way of writing an application that's, that's distributed between a whole bunch of different machines. And it's primarily for running on top of Azure. So this is what powers the, the halo, uh, status and, um, the, 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 the system for keeping track of like who's in what game and, and what the, the different store scores and weapons use and those types of things. So there was a, there was a presentation out at build that, that showed off how this thing worked. But uh, I wanted to get up and running myself. So I pulled this down and they were actually using trace logging within the application, which is fine whenever you're running it locally and you can, you know, it's also possible to grab these things in Azure. But what I was able to do was I was with one line of code, 
I was able to add one line of code in the worker role and the web role startup methods. And that basically turned on uh, taking those trace logs, pushing them into uh, log for net, and then having log for net automatically configure an appender that would push out to log for stuff.com. So literally with one line of code in each of the Orleans components, I was able to go out to the web then, uh, a web address, and view those messages in real time without signing up, without doing anything like that. I can't, I can't stress how easy this is. There's, there really was no, no more to it. So I just wanted to point that out because I've actually, I've heard of, there's at least one big company that I can't mention that, that started using this, which I, I thought was interesting. Uh, it's great that they're using it. Uh, it's just so easy to get up and running. But anytime I develop, you know, start developing any kind of application like this, I'm just going to throw it in there to get that that real time logging without any kind of friction. Uh, so I recommend checking that out. So that was one thing that I wanted to mention for for building Azure applications. I'm so, pretty cool. Yeah. Again, you you sort of have to see it in action. If this was if we were doing a you know a video podcast or something like that, I would I'd probably show this thing in action. But you can you can literally get up and running with this thing in five minutes. In fact, the the website it has a text box with with an application id it generates you an application id you push one button it tells you the code to put into each of your components in azure you just copy and paste that code in and you click on the the button on the website or you go there's a qr code you can even scan and you can view those log messages in real time uh right from the web so you don't have to worry about firewalls or where anything is at um, it, it's, it's just it's very it, it's really cool to see it in action and it, it helps you for for, for viewing things like if you if you passing a message message through multiple components up in Azure, you can watch how that message flows through those those various components. So, Carl, app of the week. Uh, what's your app pick of the week? This week, it's the Channel 9 app. Uh, a lot of us are familiar with the videos on Channel 9. Um, I'm really guilty about that around build time. That's where they're all hosted. And um, what this app does is it allows you to uh, search for videos, play them right through the app. Um, it also uh, notify you when there's new videos available. So uh, it's also available for phone and on the uh, Windows Store. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, so one other thing that I want to talk about, I want to get some plugs in. So so Jason, uh, Jason Short, we can find you out at Twitter at uh, your at Infinite Codex. So that's I-N-F-I-N-I-T-E-C-O-D-E-X. And whenever I started uh, looking at some of your links here, so you also have, uh, you have a blog out there and actually you have a, you have a sort of an Azure related blog and then you have a personal blog. And I looked at your blog and you had a post just a few days ago and you have a new iOS app out there. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? So sure. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I'm just a tech junkie. I mean, I, I had apps for Palm back in the day, and it's just fun for me to just write this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been really wanting to build something that was truly cross-platform, that I could have the same code base for iOS, Android, and Windows. And I'd really been kind of struggling with it because Xamarin does part of it. You can write in you know, C-sharp everywhere, but mm -hmm. you still have to redo your UI. So I was like, well, I don't want to do a line of business type of app or some, you know, some app like that. So I decided to do a game because there is a library called Cocos 2DX, which mm -hmm. is cross-platform C++. Um, and so I actually wrote a game um, that it's all using Cocos 2DX 
and I'm basically publishing it to all three platforms and just kind of writing up, you know, the lessons I'm learning while I'm going through this and what the differences are. And like, I'm still actually kind of curious, like right now I haven't implemented any in-app purchase or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so how do you handle that cross-platform? You know, some of those types of things that I'm, I'm just, you know, it's a, it's, it's been a, you know, a journey I'm learning and having a good time and blogging about it. Okay. This is, yeah, this was really cool. This looks like an awesome game. I'm, I'm anxious to play it. I'm going to have to, uh, I got to figure out where I can get, uh, get my hands on an iOS device though. Or just wait a couple of weeks and it'll be on windows phone too. Oh, so, <laughs> okay. So this, yeah. so, so the, you, you actually are going to have it on multiple platforms. Thanks to that unified code base, huh? Yeah, cool. no, that, that's my plan. I'm going to have it yeah. on all the major platforms. And then, you know, I'll, I'll play around with like in-app purchases on each platform. I'll play around okay. with how do you do ads on each platform. Um, and then we'll kind of see like, hey, where do I get the best downloads? Where do I get the best utilization? You know, it'll just be fun. Oh, that's great. And then you can, you know, implement some of the stuff that you talked about today that's specific to each platform and, and see how those things go. So that's that's pretty exciting. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, good good luck with that app. Um, so, like I said, you can find you on Twitter at infinite codex. I uh, can also go to infinitecodex.com. Um, anything else that you wanted to plug Jason? No, those are uh, the two places they should go. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, I'm Jason. You can find me at ytechie.com and on Twitter, uh, at ytechie. And Carl? you can find me at Carl Schweitzer or wpdevguy.com. Okay. And then, uh, we're always looking for feedback so you can send feedback to feedback at msdevshow.com. So that's all we have for this week. Uh, thank you, Jason, for joining the show. We really appreciate you having on. No problem. And we'll definitely have to have you on again. This was great.